Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. Um, Kids, we've got Pastor Jeremiah right here. Go ahead and follow him out. He'd love to take you to your classes. Uh, All you adults in the room, say bye, kids. All right, sweet. Um, If we haven't met yet, my name's Nick Mastrude. Um, Thank you. Love you guys, too. Lead some of the youth in the house here. And um, yeah, really excited to be with you. Um, I just want to start off by telling a quick story. For those of you who don't know, um, Luke, Danica, and myself, and also Allison, but this story doesn't involve her, but Luke and Danica and myself and Allison, we all went to college together. And um, very generously, Danica had gotten us tickets to see a band that we really liked when we were in college. And um, it's like this super moody, emotional band um, called Dashboard Confessional. And um, while we're sitting at this outdoor venue, listening to the opening bands, kind of anticipating, one of our friends who was there informed us that the lead singer of the band we were about to see is there in the crowd, just a couple people down, watching the opening bands. And we're like, holy smokes, we're going to meet Christopher Caraba. This is wild. It's, that's him. It's, it, it's there. There he is in the flesh. And, and Luke and Danica were about to get married at this time. And they were fangirling over this guy, hoping, hoping to meet him and get a picture with him and let him know that, they will, that she's going to be walking down the aisle to one of his songs. So it's kind of a special moment. So we all kind of worked up the courage to introduce ourselves and Danica talked about how much of a fan she was and how she'll be walking down the aisle to his song. It was an absolute unforgettable moment and here it is right here. This kind of like, this is like blackmail. This is really embarrassing actually, but that, that is in fact me in the middle, Luke to the left, Danica to the right. And the only problem with this photo here is that's not Christopher Caraba. In fact, we have no idea who this guy is. And that guy had nothing to do with the band. And he probably is telling this story, but it has a completely different understanding of what's going on. He didn't bother to say a word, and we got a picture with him, and he's like, thank you, and we go on our way. So here's, here's the point that I want to make is oftentimes we think we know somebody, right? Like oftentimes we have like an image in our mind of who somebody should be. And maybe even we've been told like we were this day, that's him. And and we go, oh, that must be him. He's saying that it's him. It's him. Um, We've been told uh, the the wrong thing. And, And I want us today to ask the question, what do we think about God? What do we think about God? Who is God? And I'm going to explain that. No, I'm, I'm going to attempt to talk about the scriptures here. Like, that's a big question. Who is God to us? And how do we know? And I, I wonder if we've developed an idea of who God is um, merely based on what people have told us, or maybe based on the experiences that we've had in life that informs who we think God is, or maybe we just have these random ideas in our mind of who God is. I wonder if we have like a caricature you know what a character is? A character of who God is. Like, he must be like this. This is the, the image that I have of when I think of God. A.W. Tozer has this famous line that goes like this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I have to ask the question, why in the world does he say this? And here, here's why he says it. Who God is has profound implications on how we relate to him. Wouldn't you agree with that? Let me, let me explain. If, if, if you don't agree, you can say, I don't agree. No, just, no, just keep it to yourself. That's the case. If you do agree, you can say amen, though. But what we believe about God has a profound impact on the lives that we live. So if God is an angry tyrant, 
you are going to approach him really timidly, assuming that he's going to fly off the rails at any moment, okay? If God is a tolerant, permissive pushover, you'll have little to no respect for him, knowing that he's gonna give you what you want if you just like keep pressing in. If you think that God is a distant, inaccessible person or, or, or being out there, you will not waste your time drawing near because he doesn't wanna listen to you to begin with. If God is your vending machine, then all you have to do is pray and you're gonna get loaded up. You know what I'm saying? He's gonna, you just put in your stuff and he's gonna, he's gonna give you what you want and we're gonna approach him with selfish motives. If we are honest, we all have these ideas about God. Would you agree? We off to a good start. So we've been in a long study talking about Moses' life. And today's passage is one of the clearest pictures of who God is. And, and my prayer for today is that the words on these pages would whet our appetite for more. That we would get a, a glimpse, maybe even just a touch, a little tiny glimpse of who God is, and we'd go, I want more of that. Oh my goodness, that's who God says that he is? That's, maybe we're going to be doing some unlearning today. I think we might be doing some more unlearning than actual learning today. Uh, Are you ready to lean in? Okay. Um, Scott McKnight is this uh, New Testament professor in Chicago, and for years he taught a class on Jesus, and he would start every semester with his students with two surveys. The first was a set of questions about the students. He'd ask, okay, what do you like? What do you dislike? What do you believe? And so on and so forth. And then another class, he would have the exact same questions only um, it was about Jesus. And they might not make the connection at first, but he concluded that 90% of the time, answers were the exact same. (laughs) And, And this was the conclusion, was that we are so quick to create God in our own image. Like, if Jesus agrees with you on everything, if he hates all the same people that you hate, if he voted like you voted, if he's passionate about the same things as you, if he's flexible with sexuality, or if he's legalistic about these practices about all sorts of spiritual practices, it's likely that he has become much more of a figment of our imagination, a caricature than the God of the Bible. So um, oftentimes what we believe about God is more revealing about who we are than about who God is, which is pretty crazy. Our, Our theology is like a mirror into our soul. It shows what's deep inside. The truth is we all want a God that is controllable and comprehensible. We want to be the authority on who God is or who who he isn't or what's right or what's wrong. And the most ancient temptation going way back to Adam and Eve in the garden is to decide for ourselves what God is like and whether we should live into his vision of human flourishing or our our own vision of human flourishing. I want to be like God. Give me that fruit. It's important to note that we all have theology or an understanding or lack of understanding of who God is. And we all have thoughts and opinions and convictions about God. And most of these, are, some of these are good, bad, right, wrong, brilliant, dangerous. We all have a theology. Um, the problem is, however, is that much of what we believe about God is bent out of shape. It's bent out of shape for all sorts of reasons, because of our experiences, because of what people have told us. And because of this, today, we're going to unlearn some things, and we are going to go to the source If we want to learn about God, we must go to the source. Lucky for us, Moses was near to the source. This is one of the lessons that he learns in the wilderness. Um, And he he wasn't just like near God, like he was like near God, right? He was near the source. And he actually tells humanity what he's like. God does. This is crazy. A A lesson that Moses learns in the wilderness is God's name. Do you want to hear God's name today? Did you know he has a name? Spoiler alert, it's not God. 
God tells us his name. And something even crazier is that the verse we're looking at today is the most quoted Bible verse by the Bible. Meaning this verse will show up 20 more times throughout all of the Old Testament and New Testament. So to say this Bible verse is significant is an extreme understatement. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Jonah, tons of the New Testament writers, they quoted it, they alluded to it, they prayed it, they named it and claimed it, they sang it. Jonah complained about it, but above all, they believed it. They believed it. Could we stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus 34. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one. Exodus 34, verses 5, 6, 7, 8. It says this, And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming this. You ready? This is the Lord's name. This is what he says about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. This is the first time that we get a thorough disclosure of God. And we, we can see and we can draw conclusions of who God is based on previous experiences. So one what do we see in Genesis? We know that he's a creator, right? He's done some powerful things. We know he's powerful. We know he's just. He's like put, poured down some justice, you know what I mean? But, but now he tells us what he's really like. He expresses his heart to creation. The rest of the Old Testament is God proving it. The rest of the New Testament is God showing it and proving it. So if you, if you look at the text that we just read, all of these words are relationship words. Did you notice that? Like, this is all about how God relates to his people. So when God shows himself, he doesn't lift, list off all these, like, really hard-to-grasp attributes. He doesn't say, listen up, crew, I'm omniscient. I'm all-powerful. I'm omnipresent, ever-present. I'm omnipotent, all-powerful. You know? What does he say? When God reveals himself to Moses and to Israel and to you and I, he lists off relationship words. Friends, he is all the omnis. He's wild. He, he's hard to comprehend, but let's talk about how he relates to us. Let's talk about how he relates to us. Let's talk about um, our interactions with him as humanity. Let's, let's allow God to define himself. We're going to walk through this line by line. It says this. Let's start with this. The Lord, the Lord. In other words, Yahweh, Yahweh. In the Hebrew, it's this word Yahweh, an ancient in ancient writings, a name was way more than a label that we use to make dinner reservations or to tell the barista to write on our cup. You know what I'm saying? Your name was your identity. It's not like my name's Harold, right? No, it's like your name was your destiny. It was the truth hidden in the marrow of your bones. And in the English, it's translated the Lord, the Lord, but in Hebrew, it's I am who I am. Okay, what does that mean? That's helpful, Nick. This is what it means. Whatever I am about to say, I am this way constantly. I am this way all the time. I am unshifting. I am completely stable in all my ways. And I am the exact same yesterday, today, and... 
Why doesn't God just say, hello, Moses, I am God? I'm glad you asked. Don't get me wrong, there is only one God, but there are thousands of little g-gods. Last week, we heard about a god made out of gold that Dave talked about, fashioned into like a calf, right? And the, the ancient world was operated by what we would know as the gods. So Yahweh isn't some generic god in the Hebrew, which would be El or Elohim. He is completely other than. Like in the ancient world, Yahweh was unheard of because every god in the ancient world was shifting and moving and ready to fly off the handle if you did not appease him or her. Every other god required your labor to climb up the ladder to get their attention. Appease the gods and receive favor. Tick them off and receive wrath and torture. Our god isn't one of many gods. Our god is the god, Yahweh. And unlike the little g-gods, before God ever asks a thing, he offers himself in relationship. You'll notice that God says his name twice here. Um, but in, in the modern world, we underline things or we bold or we capitalize or we italicize or whatever. But in the ancient world, significance would come through repetition. Like if you wanted to make a point, you would say it twice. You could say God's name is so nice, he had to say it twice. Like it's this, it's this moment when God says his name and he states it again as if to say, slow down and take that in. Take that in for a moment. Let's continue. It says the compassionate and gracious God. Compassion is a feeling word. It actually comes from the Hebrew word womb. Womb, yes. Meaning God's heart towards his people moves like that of a loving parent. Got any parents in the house? Yes. When, when God sees his kids joyful, what do you think he's full of? Joy. When God sees his kids hurting, his heart breaks with them. If you're hurting, happy, or heartbroken, his default mode is to move in compassion towards you. That's how God starts. Another moment this word is used just to kind of illustrate a little bit more is in 1 Kings, there's a story where these two women are fighting over a baby. Um, both claim that they are the mother, which is pretty wild because in the ancient world, they hadn't developed DNA test kits, and they also didn't have Jerry Springer to figure this stuff out. So, so King Solomon, he comes up with this wild plan and he says, and this is kind of graphic, but he says, cut the baby in half and give, give it to both mothers. That should flush out the parent. And it says this, immediately the mother was deeply moved out of, and that's the word compassion right there. That same word, compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. That is this intense, visceral, motherly love for the child, the mother who had this immense compassion was obviously the true mother. That's how God relates to you. Um, that is God's heart towards you. So I want to ask, you going through something? You going through something right now? There's been some tough stuff going on in your life right now. God feels for you and with you. He's able to sympathize with you. Psalm uh, 103, verse 8, this is going to, and 13, this is going to look really familiar. The Lord is what? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That seems repetitive. And then listen to this in verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Do you need a little bit of compassion today, church? Can I dare you, if you are hurt, heartbroken, addicted, struggling, sad, confused, wandering, rebelling, or anxious, your heavenly father is moved with compassion. That's some good news. You aren't repulsive to him. You aren't a burden to him. He's drawing near to you. And if you don't believe me, look at the God-man. God made flesh. God on display for human, in human form, Jesus Christ. 
I don't know what kind of image you've developed of God over the years, but let me start where God starts. He has compassion on you. And it gets better. He says, I feel for you. And then he says, I act upon it. He says, my heart breaks for you. And then I'm going to do something about it. I'm compassionate, which is this feeling word. And then I'm gracious, which is an action word. Um, Chuck Swindoll says it this way. Grace has to be the loveliest word in the English language. It embodies almost every attractive quality we hope to find in others. Grace is a gift of the humble to the humiliated. Grace acknowledges the ugliness of sin by choosing to see beyond it. Grace accepts a person as someone worthy of kindness despite whatever, whatever grime or hard shell casing keeps him or her separated from the rest of the world. Grace is a gift of tender mercy when it makes the least sense. You need some grace? Nothing is sweeter than tender mercy when we are undeserving. Friends, you have grace on offer for you today, this undeserved gift. You might be like, man, that, that crazy service on that random day, we just walked in, they started talking about a house and stuff, and I received a gift for the first time, this undeserved gift. God puts grace on offer for you today. And, and I want to say it this way, not because you're that awesome. <laughs> not because you are deserving. He does it because you're not awesome and not deserving. You know why he does it? Because he's awesome. Because he's so stinking awesome. He's so lavish with his grace. He just soaks you in it. He's just like, come bathe in this. God's grace is so radical that it makes people angry. If you've read the, the New Testament, you know that. But I want to tell you about this story um, where God has compassion on this crazy city called Nineveh. Uh, he, he wants to be gracious to them, right? Like he is. And so he asks Jonah, go there. And what does Jonah say? Heck nah, right? He says, those people are the worst He tried to run, Jonah tried to run, but you know, he couldn't hide. God makes a way for Jonah's expedited arrival at Nineveh and kicking and screaming, God makes it there and he preaches the worst sermon of all time. And believe it or not, the people respond. I'm praying in faith that people respond here at this one too. But they they repent, meaning they turn from their evil ways and revival breaks out and these wicked people turn from these other gods. Listen to what it says. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he was gracious. He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is a gracious God. And this same grace is on offer for you today. But check out how Jonah responds. It was so gracious, he was ticked off. He was furious. This grace was too extravagant for such a wicked people, right? Jonah 4, 1 through 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. This looks really familiar, this verse right here. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Underline that. Write that down. Can I encourage you with who God is? You are never too far gone. You feeling like you're in Nineveh right now? You're never too far gone. God's in pursuit of you. Grace is on offer for you. Yeah, Nick, dude, you're like, what, 30 years old? You don't know what I've been through. You don't know, what, you don't know what's going on in my life. And you know what? I don't know those things for all of you, but I do know our God. <laughs> I know our God, and he says that he has compassion and grace on you today. So today, could that be the day, like in Nineveh, when revival starts in your heart, and you do the same thing, and you turn from your evil ways? You might deserve punishment and calamity, but our God is compassionate and gracious. Like, don't leave this place without receiving that gift. And just a quick note of encouragement. There is never a time when when you pray to God, 
and he leaves that conversation more informed. <laughs> so I just want you to have the freedom. Like, you can be honest with God, and he still is going to offer you grace and, and compassion. I was reading an article this week that I think sums up this whole compassionate and gracious God, and it says, it, it goes like this. It's kind of cheesy, but I, I like that kind of stuff. It says this, religion says, I messed up, dad's going to kill me, and the gospel, the God of compassion and grace says, I messed up, I need to call dad. I messed up. I need to run to the Father. I messed up. I need to talk to him about what's going on. I know that he's compassionate. I know that he's gracious. Let's keep going. Slow to anger. God doesn't fly off the handle. I think a lot of us have this character in our mind. You kind of see that character like this, don't mess up, like this lightning bolt, like I'm about to get you, boy, right? Um, the Hebrew word for slow to anger is better translated as long-suffering, which in the Hebrew means long-nosed. So when a person gets mad, what color does their face turn? Red. So the longer the nose, this is crazy, the longer the nose, the longer it takes for the blood to rush to the tip of your nose. It takes a long time for him to get mad. So, but here's the crazy things, or the the crazy thing about that is that God has legitimate reason to be angry. Like, you are his prized possession, and if you're anything like me, you've turned your back and you've sinned. I'm the first to say that I've done that. And out of his loving kindness, he chooses to be slow in his anger. He's not there with a fly swatter waiting for you to mess up so he can swatch you good. Like, his heart is filled with compassion, and his nose is super long. Like, maybe you can thank God for his big nose this week, and he'll totally get it. But he's, he's the God of second and third and fourth chances, hoping that all would come to repentance. Um, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some, some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He, he is gracious and slow to anger so that everyone might come to repentance. Like, how has God been slow with his anger towards you? Maybe that's something to ponder this week. Like, how has he been slow to anger with you? In other words, what are some areas in life where it would make complete sense for God to pour out his wrath, but he just consciously decided to slow down his anger? Praise God for that. Like, the fact that God is slow to anger can also be said like this, you can make God mad, but you really have to work at it. Write that down. You can make God mad, but you really have to work at it. And, and this is uh, really unique um, because I think there's two things that people need to hear in this room, two different types of people. Some of you need to hear this, that God is slow to anger. Like, he is patient with you. He's slow. He's not ready to jump off the rails and shred you. But others of you need to hear he's slow to anger. God, at some point, he does get angry Maybe you've forgotten that there is a point when his nose does get red. Like he's not a pushover who gets walked on time and time and time again. There will be a time when things will be put to rights. We'll talk about that in here in a little bit. Let's continue. Abounding in love and faithfulness. This means that God's love and commitment to his word never runs out. Like, do you remember the covenant that Dave talked about last week where, like, God, like, proposed to the Israelites? You know, that was kind of like this covenant moment. Um, They got married and... God is saying that wasn't a contract where if you, you break your end of the deal, like the deal is off. It was a covenant, meaning I will, I will always hold up my part. I will remain faithful to the end. And this is so cool as I was reading. Most scholars believe 
that when Jesus claimed that he was full of grace and truth in John's gospel, he was actually quoting Exodus 34. Like John is saying that Jesus is the embodiment of love and faithfulness. Like Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel could never do, what they were supposed to do. He came to bless the world. Um, All because, why did he do that? All because thousands and thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. When Israel failed, Yahweh was faithful. Before that, when Adam failed, what was Yahweh? When you fail, what is Yahweh? Jesus takes all of our failures. He takes millennia of broken promises. And you know what he does? He drags them to that cross. And he absorbs them into his death. And then breaking its hold over all of humanity through resurrection. This is also another spoiler. Easter's coming, baby. And, and he raises from the dead. This is why the New Testament scholars and, and writers, sorry, the New Testament writers are constantly quoting from the Old Testament because the gospel actually starts in Genesis 21, not in Matthew 1. Yahweh made a promise and he's gonna fulfill it. Yahweh made a promise and he's going to fulfill it. Can I encourage you with hope? This, this, the definition of hope that I came across this week, so good. Biblical hope is the absolute Not, I really hope he asks me out. No, the absolute expectation of coming good based on the character of God. Our hope isn't that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Our hope um, isn't that, that everything that happens to us is God's will. It must be God's will, right? Like, no, our hope is that no matter what happens, Jesus is back from the dead and anything can happen. Our hope is that regardless of the circumstance that we're in, Jesus is back from the dead and he gets the last word, not the thing that we're struggling with, not the circumstance that we're sitting into. That is biblical hope. Our hope is the bedrock trust that no matter how many wrongs we turn or the setbacks we face, we can sleep soundly because we know that one day Yahweh will destroy evil forever. He will bring heaven to earth and it's all because Yahweh is abounding in love and faithfulness to you. Yes, things will go horribly wrong, but the resurrection is a megaphone. We need to use that in youth ministry a lot. (laughs) We need to get loud. We need to turn it up to 11, and it's the megaphone that says, and it screams, and it yells, God is bigger than evil and stronger than death. The empty tomb towers over every tragedy that we ever face with this promise that he's going to make everything beautiful in their time. God's promise is not that you will marry your dream spouse, sorry, or get famous, or make tons of money or retire on a golf course in California at the age of 40. But I'm praying in faith, no. But God's promise is that he will bless you so that you can turn around and do the same for others. He'll put you to rights so that you can put the world to rights. And one day, in time, he'll return to finish the work that he started, and he will set the crooked things straight. Let's continue. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The good news of the gospel is crystal clear right here that love is on offer for you and wickedness, rebellion, and sin will be forgiven. There's uh, these artists that I think illustrate this really well. There's, there's this art exhibit um, that you walk in and there's just piles of trash everywhere. I want to show one of them to you. There's like this 
big old pile of trash. So you walk through this art exhibit and you're like, there's some trash, there's some trash, this is weird, it smells kind of funny, I don't know what's going on here. Um, and, but the crazy part is the second time you walk through the exhibit. You walk through the exhibit again, the second time you walk, there's actually light shining on these piles of trash and it reflects on the wall these beautiful pieces of shadow art. Look at this, that is what God does. That is what God does. He turns our trash into treasure. Like he can, he can turn darkness into light. What the enemy wanted to use to harm you, he can use for good. And let me say, if you've been engaged in wickedness, rebellion, and sin, I've got some news to share with you. Our God is in the business of forgiveness. He's in the business of forgiveness. The, the good news of the gospel is that our sin was traded for Jesus's righteousness on the cross. I don't know if you've watched those pawn shop shows that's a horrible trade. My sin for Jesus' righteousness, he has not watched that show because he got the, the short end of the stick. But I don't know what kind of mess you've made of your life, but a redemption story is on the horizon if you come to him. Like if you've walked in today, lost in sin, tethered to wickedness, rebellion, whatever it is, the harvest is, is ripe for God to pull his oldest trick out of his sleeve. Come to him today. Our our compassion, maybe you're like, I've come to him many, many times. Come to him again and again and again. Our compassionate, gracious, long-nosed God is desperate to pour out forgiveness on you. Let's continue. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Here we go. He punishes the children, what is this about? And their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Friends, God's justice is really good. It's really good. We crave justice. You read the news recently and thought, what the heck? What? I, don't, I think I can say that up here. Like, what in the world? Are you kidding me? Like, why is this happening? But at the same time, I can't help but want to cringe when I hear he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Because so I go, I've been guilty, right? But Yahweh's justice, it isn't about retribution or payback or some kind of like God-sized vendetta. It's about healing and renewing the world. Like when we repent, God responds with mercy. But when we don't repent, then it's, he'll only wait so long before he has to put a stop to our rampage. I want to make it very clear that Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Sin is not very forgiving. Y'all bring your sins to Yahweh. He'll forgive those. But sin is not forgiving. There will be a time when justice is served for sin. That's why we take seriously this whole making Jesus known thing. There's kind of like this urgency behind it, right? Like Jesus's plan to get his message into the world is you. You know what his plan B is? I think he forgot to make one because <laughs> it's you. Like soon God will put an end to evil. May we be found latched to Jesus, our advocate, standing between us and the Father saying he's mine. That's why we evangelize. We want people to, to claim Christ now for the hard part, what's with this whole punishing children for their parents' stuff? So to say it plainly, there's no such thing as a personal sin. All sin affects other people than just you. Um, so sin has familial consequences, but it's not that easy to translate this verse into English. Like in the Hebrew, the word generations doesn't actually show up here. So, so the text actually reads, maintaining love for thousands and it doesn't say generations there. And then it says, and then punishing children to the third and fourth for their parents. So, so the point to be made is actually that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
mercy triumphs. So mercy extends for the thousands, but sins, sins will be dealt with for generations, for, for the third and fourth is what it says, meaning judgment is going to be harsh. It's going to be wild, but the more weighty thing is that Yahweh forgives thousands. Let me bring a little bit of comfort to you here too. Deuteronomy 24, 16 Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. I want to make it clear that God is not saying that if grandma cheats on her taxes, that little Johnny is going to get shredded for a couple of generations, right? But what this verse is communicating in Exodus 34 is that sin has real consequences for the family. And here's, here's kind of three points that I want to make. You can, just for food for thought, parent, parent sin has consequences on the children's future. If you think about like a broken marriage, divorce, financial decisions affect the kids, priorities, the lack thereof, priorities, you have far more influence than you realize. And I just want to say, parents, you need Jesus. We, as, we, we need to latch on to Jesus in order to, in order to uh, avoid the sins that our kids will experience the consequences of. The second one is this, that sin runs in the family. Did you know that like many sins run in our family like DNA? I've got all sorts of sins up in my family lineage and it's like DNA and I need to yank that stuff out, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the... There's a reason that's a thing, Right? Yahweh is just, this is the third point, and he will continue to punish sin in, every, in each and every generation until it's completely gone. He just wants to get it the heck out of there. Like this does not mean that your grandkids are going to get punished for your sin, but what it does mean is that consequences of your sin today may affect them. God wants to deal with sin in its entirety. And you know how he does it? By you coming to him. Now, you make the decision now, not with me and my kids, not, not with me and generations to come. No, I'm gonna latch on to Jesus. Like it stops with me because I'm running to the Lord. God wants to deal with sin. He wants to pull it out and you have to let him. Okay, great. So we made it through this. Um, this is who God is. He's said his name. We have a lot to chew on. Would you agree? How do I apply this? Um, what Yahweh wants is a living, breathing people to put his name on display in this world. To show the world what he is like, not only by what we say, but how we live. Did you know that God's home address is no longer in the temple? Did you know God doesn't even live here? God's home address isn't the worship center. God's home address is you. Wherever you find yourself standing, that is God's home address. So my encouragement to you is this, carry the name You heard the name of Yahweh. You know what he's about. Carry the name. Jesus has this famous line where he says, I only do what I see my father doing. Friends, we just got a crystal clear picture of what the father's up to. Carry the name. Let's bear this image in the world. Let's carry the name. God used to dwell in the temple. Now you're like a temple on legs, (laughs) like walking around. So my charge, carry the name compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, living in the tension of justice and mercy. Wherever you set foot, carry the name. So, okay, what does that mean, Nick? You're not just a barista. You're a living, breathing example of what God is like to the world. You are not just a software engineer. You're a temple on legs. God's home address is inside of you. You're not a middle schooler, high schooler, college student. You are a citizen of God's kingdom called to bring heaven to earth and, and bring light into this dark world. You're not just running to the store to grab a few items. I'll be right back. No, you're carrying the name, baby, right? 
I keep saying baby, I don't know why, but, but you aren't just like taking your dog on a walk. You're, of course you are, but you're carrying the name. What, there's no telling what kind of life or what that might lead you to, okay? Like you're not just in a meeting for work, another meeting. No, you're carrying the name. Tap your neighbor on the shoulder and say, you're carrying the name. Go ahead. Now tap your second choice on the shoulder and say, you're carrying the name. Like one of the ways we proclaim God's name and we do this all the time. One of the ways that we proclaim God's name is we do it by taking communion. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, it says that we proclaim Jesus's death until he returns. That's why we do it. In other words, we physically take this bread and we take this juice, we raise a glass and we remember that day on the cross. We proclaim that Jesus is the triumphant king who took care of our sins. We proclaim that he's mighty to save and if he did it then, he can do it again, no matter what I'm dealing with. Like, we fix our eyes on the day when sin and death were disarmed. And he took our record of wrong, and he nailed it to the cross. And I'm going to give you guys the next few minutes to proclaim his death until he comes. And then you know what we do? We proclaim his death, not just here, but we walk out those doors, and we do the same thing. We carry his name. So I'm just going to give you freedom. You're going to take communion on your own. That might look like physically on your own, or that might be like grabbing a neighbor and saying, hey, can we just pray that we'd be able to carry the name well and fix our, fix our eyes on the name of Jesus, on the name of Yahweh? So you just have the next few minutes. Come on up. There's communion elements around the room. Grab those. Take them whenever you're, you're ready with whoever you want, and we're going to continue to worship. Go ahead.